Hello, everybody. This week's parish is Parashas Vayetzev. And Yaakov Avinu sets out to go to the house of Lavan. He's looking for to get married. And Rivka tells Yitzchak that I can't have Yaakov marrying anybody here from Canaan. He has to go back to my family and find a shidduch from over there. And all the Mepharshim already asked by Avram Avinu when he sends Eliezer to find a shidduch for Yitzchak from Aram Naharayim as well. What's this obsession with marrying the people from Aram Naharayim, from Avram's family, from Rivka's family? Seemingly, they're just as bad as the people in Canaan. They're both serving idols, both serving Avodah They don't seem to have anything better about them. And the Kliyakar famously writes in Sefer Hasidim, they write that this idea that the Midas, the character traits of a person, are very, very, very important. They're very deeply embedded in the, the subject of DNA, the genes of a person. And although the person's actions are both doing Avodah Zarah, but the genes, the DNA, the Midas that are embedded in Avram Avinu's family, Rivka's family, are better. And that's why they're specifically going there, because they want those Midas to be passed down into Klai. So I heard interestingly from a, a, uh, one of the PhDs in our community. He told me that, in fact, scientifically, physical exterior appearance, like eye color here, all that stuff, it's actually relatively one or two genes that define that. It doesn't take a lot to change that. And that's why you have different Jews, Jewish communities in different countries have very difficult, different physical appearance because you know, even with a tiny percentage of one or two percent of you know, intermarriage and different kind of conversion, you'll have very different looks very, very quickly. Whereas when it comes to character traits, the genes that define that are actually very, very complex. There's multiple, multiple genes that need to be changed in order to change a person's character traits genetically. And that's something which Avram and Rivka, they wanted to be passed down to Klai Yisrael. Now, Rabbi Chaim Levine, the Retelzer Yeshiva, asked the obvious question. You look in this week's parsha, Lavan, our great-great-grandpa slash Rivka's brother, right? he doesn't seem to be the nicest guy. If we're here for Midas, if we're here for character traits, this guy's a crook. He's a very, very, very difficult person. Um, his own daughters don't seem to like him too much. right? So what is this Mida, this special character trait that we're aiming for when we go to marry into Lavan's family? And Rabbi Chaim Levine used to explain like this. He said that you're right. Lovin was not a nice person. He was actually a very, very difficult person. He was a crook. But there was a midah which Lovin had, which is what we want in Kaiser, And that's the midah of being big. Lovin was not a simple petty thief. He wasn't a guy who just kind of walks into the store and steals a chocolate bar and kind of well, tries to shoplift. Lovin was a guy who, he was a real mechutzif. He's the kind of guy who after seven years of hard work, by Yaakov working for him, he can go on with this whole from face and say, you know, um, we don't do this kind of stuff over here. How could you even think to do something so horrible to marry the younger daughter before the older one? After Yaakov goes and works for him for 20 years, he chases after Yaakov, and God comes to him and tells him, don't say anything wrong to Yaakov, at the end of the parasha, and he says, you know, Yaakov comes to him, and they have a whole debate, and Yaakov tells him, I did this, I did that for you, I treated you so well. And Lovin says, look, the sheep are my sheep, the, the kids are my kids. Straight-faced, Lovin has no issue kind of doing great, great, great scams. He's a big person. He's not a guy who's little. He can go to the top. And that's a Mida, which we need in Kaiser. Kaiser can't be built with little people, with little aspirations and no ambition. Kaiser has to be built with people who are big 
and people who kind of are not tied down. And that's the Mida, says Rabbi Chaim Levine Zetzel, that Klaisho wanted, that Avram Rivka wanted in Klaisho, this Mida of being very, very big and not settling for little. If you look at the Parsha as it's written, we know many Parshas, is always Pays and Samachs in the Chumash. And those Pays and Samachs, they represent different gaps in the writing, like paragraph breaks in the Sefer Torah when we write the Parsha. In this week's Parsha, there is no paragraph breaks, there's no Pays, there's no Samachs throughout the entire Parsha. And the Balaturim, in the beginning of the Parsha, and the Das Kenim of the Balaturim, they ask, why is this Parsha so to be completely closed up? There's no paragraph breaks. Why is there no gaps? And they say an interesting answer. They say because since Yaakov was running away from Esau, Bechashai, kind of secretly hiding, so therefore it had to be all closed up. It couldn't be revealed at all. It had to be all closed. Question is, what, are they, what, are they, what does that mean? What's the deeper meaning of that? So I saw Chaim Shulevitz, the Sichas Musar. He writes a very interesting idea. He explains that we know there's a famous Tana whose name was Nachem Ish Gamzu. Most great rabbis are known as rabbi something, but this person, instead of being called a rabbi Nachum, he's called a Nachum Ish Gamzu, which shows that this title of Ish Gamzu was such a great title, it's more chashiv, it's more honorable than being called Rav. So what does it mean, Ish Gamzu? So the Gemara says he's called Ish Gamzu because he had the ability to always say Gamzu Lataiva. This too is for the good. And the Gemara says different stories about him, how he would have very, very great trials in life, and things seem to be really, really bad and horrible, and he always had the ability to say, no, this too is for the good. And Rebbe Kiva, his student, also had that. The Gemara says more stories over there. But Rebbe Chaim Shlavis points out that the way he did it, how did he always see the good? A lot of things in life, unfortunately, they don't seem so good. Things seem bad. So how did he do it? He says, look at the Gemara carefully. The Gemara says he's called the Gam Zulatayva. Also, this is for the good. What's this also? What it means is as follows. You see, if you look at things... In a vacuum, you look at the item by itself, the thing that just happened to you, and it can seem really, really bad by itself. But if you recognize it and you zoom out, you recognize it's actually a link in a chain of something bigger. It's not just an item by itself. This is actually a chain of events. Then you have the ability to say that this is also for the good. This is all part of that big chain of events that have to happen to make it good. And that's really what Nachim Gamzu's ability was, as Rechaim Shalavitz was, he was able to zoom out. He was able to see the bigger picture. He didn't look at things by themselves. He zoomed out and says, this is part of a bigger chain of events, which ultimately are all going to lead to good. And therefore, says Rechaim Shalavitz, that's what's happening over here in our parasha. Yaakov Avinu right now is seemingly hitting rock bottom. He went from having a very idyllic life, sitting and learning in the Mishmajah Roshayim Ever, minding his own business. His mother comes to him with this prophecy that he has to get and steal the brachas. He gets on Esau's bad side. Esau wants to kill him. He has to run away. He ends up getting Eliphaz, stealing everything he has. According to the Medrash, Eliphaz even stole his clothing to the point that Yaakov literally had nothing to wear, even a shirt on his back, and he had to find, the Medrash says, was a guy who died, and Yaakov, you know, had his clothing, took from him, and he has to go now and work for 14 years to be able to afford to buy his wives, you know, so to speak, to get married. He has a very, very tough time. And the whole Parsha, seemingly, Yaakov has one bad event happening after the next. The whole Parsha, seemingly, is just bad events consecutively. But if you zoom out on the Parsha, and you don't take it as separate events, you don't have these 
breaks in the paragraph that pays in the sandbox. But you look at it as one seamless chain of events, then you recognize it's Gamzulatayba, the whole thing was for the good. And that's why the parsha has no gaps. It teaches this point. That Yaakov Avinu, although each thing independently may be very difficult, Yaakov Avinu is being shown by Kaj Baruchu that ultimately the whole package is for the good. And that's how we have to view things in our own life, is a lot of times you have to just step back and say, okay, there's a bigger picture here, and I'll see how this is just a link in the chain. The Medrash, in the beginning of Eicha, tells us how when the Jewish people were exiled after the Churban Beis HaMikdash, they went and they davened, and all the different forefathers come to Kaddish Baruch Hu, and they davened that Klai should be allowed to return, davened for the kind of the, the, the Geula to come, and each one of them, Akash Baruch Hu finds some kind of reason why he shouldn't listen to their tefillahs. Avram Avinu Davins, Akash Baruch Hu says no. Yitzchak Davins, Yaakov Davins. The only one, says the Medrash, who ultimately Akash Baruch Hu listens to and agrees to take Klai back is Rachel. And Rachel comes and says, you know, I gave up my husband for my sister so she shouldn't be embarrassed. I gave up everything I had. And Akash Baruch Hu, you should do the same thing. You should, so to speak, be you should kind of let it go and ignore, so to speak, all the things that they did wrong, just like I ignored my own self for the sake of my sister. Akash Baruch who ultimately listens to Rachel, and he says, Stop crying, stop wailing, I'm going to bring back your children to Eretz Yisrael. And the question that many Mepharshim ask is that, it's true, what Rachel did in this week's is amazing. It's super hard. It's something that, you know, it's a big, big challenge to be able to give up your what you want and your own, so to speak, thing that you deserve, to give it up for somebody else. But is it necessarily bigger or harder than what Avram Avinu did by the Akedah, what Yitzhak had to go through, what Yaakov went through? Why is this particular mitzvah, or let's call it, you know, challenge that Rachel had, why is this the only one that can get Kali Yisrael out of Gulls? Why is this greater, so to speak, than what Avram Avinu Yitzhak and everyone else had done? So I heard from Ron Lepiansky. He said over from Chaim Shalevitz, Chaim Shalevitz, the Mashgiach in Mary Yeshiva, and Chaim Shalevitz used to have a schmooze. He used to always say over on this topic. And he used to say like this, during the Six-Day War, Yeshiva Samir was, if you've ever been to the Mir Yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael, so Yeshivas don't have a lot of money. So the way the Mir Yeshiva managed to buy the property that they have was because after the War of Independence, so Yerushalayim was owned by the Jordanians, and there was, you know, kind of the, the, what we call the Old City, and East Jerusalem was owned by the Jordanians, and the Israelis had the parts of West, Western Jerus- Jerusalem, kind of the newer city. And the areas right next to the border between the Jordanians were obviously very, very undesirable. The Jordanians would take pot shots at people. It was kind of it was a no-man's land, which is where Highway 1 is, and the right there, next to the highway, next to the no man's land, next to the border, there was a lot of space available which nobody wanted. So the Mary Yeshiva went and bought that land right next to the border for their yeshiva. So during the Six Day War, unfortunately, there was a lot of fighting going on over there with the Jordanians. The yeshiva had a lot of you know, they were they were they were they, were, they, they had artillery hits and there was four direct artillery hits at the building of Mir Yeshiva, and the Yeshiva was in the basement, they have a dining room there now, in the Miklat, they have like a, a bomb shelter down in the basement, and there was one time when they were sitting there during the Six Day War, during those few days, in the bomb shelter, and they took one of these direct hits against the building, the whole building started to shake, they could hear the whole building trembling, and they were basically sure that they were, they, they were going to die, and Baruch Hashem, they survived, 
So Chaim Shalavich used to always give a shmuz. He said, why is it that we survived, why he felt that we survived that shelling of the yeshiva? And he said, you know, obviously there's a lot of tiger being learned in the yeshiva, there's a lot of tefillah, we're doing amazing things in the yeshiva, but he felt that wasn't the schus that got them out of that particular dark hour. And he said he felt the schus was as follows. When they were in that mikhlat over there, in the basement over there, so there was a neighbor, there was a woman who lived near the yeshiva, a woman who had a very, very hard life. She was an aguna for 20 years. An aguna is a woman whose husband refuses to give her a get. Her husband walked out on her and didn't give her a get. And this woman was very, very poor. Obviously, she wasn't married. She couldn't make her own money. And she was kind of still trying, hoping to get her get from her husband. And she had a very, very difficult life. And she was very, very bitter. She was a very, very bitter person. And this woman, she didn't have her own bomb shelter. She, you know, she lived in a small apartment nearby. So she and a couple of other neighbors, they all stayed together with the yeshiva in the bomb shelter. And when they had that direct hit, this woman got up while they were all there. And she said, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, my husband, he ruined my life. He made my life miserable. But I'm going to forgive him. I'm going to forgive him. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu, if I could forgive him, then you have to forgive us and save us. Chaim Shlavet said that he thinks that that schus is what saved the yeshiva because what happens is when a person has every right to something, this woman, her husband ruined her life. He was horrible to her. He embarrassed her. He humiliated her. He basically left her chains with no possibilities of moving forward. He did something terrible to her. He wounded her in a very, very serious way. She has every right to be upset at him, to hate him, and yet she has the ability to go and say, I'm going to forego my right. I'm going to let it go. When a person does that, it's not just a very big mitzvah. <clears throat> it's not just a very, so to speak, you know, big schos. It's a different type of schos. You have in the airport, you have regular security, and then you guys have TSA pre-check, right? In TSA pre-check, they're not checking you anymore. You don't have to go through all the same stuff that the regular people have to go through. When a person is maver amidaisav, the regular rules of schusim and averis and checking, would you have more schusim or less schusim, they don't apply anymore. You showed HaKadosh Baruch that you're willing to forgo your rules and your rights and your things that you deserve. HaKadosh Baruch says, I'll do the same for you. You deserve or you don't deserve, I'm not looking, I'm not checking, you just get to go. And that's what happened with Rachel as well. Kaisel did a lot of very big sins, unfortunately, which destroyed the base of Mekish, and they really didn't deserve to come back. So no matter how big a schus Avram Yitzhak Yaakov could bring, there's nothing you could do because Kaiso had bigger Averis. There wasn't a, a schus that can get them out. Only Rachel, who comes and says, Akash Baruch Hu, forget rights and wrongs, forget schusim. I gave up what was mine for my sister. I didn't look, I didn't calculate, I didn't say, does she mind this? I let it go. I said, I don't want her to be embarrassed. I can't have that happen. I'm going to let it go. Akash Baruch Hu sees when someone does that, and Akash Baruch Hu says, fine, you're right. I'm taking Klai Yisrael back no matter what, because you were Mavir, Amidasecha. You let go what was yours, I will let it go for Klai Yisrael. And Ervara Lepiansky always points out that, you know, nowadays there's a large industry of zgules and different things that people do to try to get the things that they need, whether it's the red strings, the special types of stones or coins. And the parsha is really telling us that the really the best gula is when a person shows a Kaj Baruch Hu that they're willing to do something which is a little difficult. They're willing to let go on something that's rightfully theirs for the sake of whether it's keeping the peace, whether for somebody else who needs it more. And they're willing to be mavir on their own medias to kind of forego what's 
they, they need for the sake of something bigger for somebody else, that could be the biggest gula. We should all be zaycha to get all the Yeshua's who need. We should all have a wonderful Shabbos.